So if you um, were to ask uh, a neighbor what they thought about President Trump's first six months uh, in office, I can almost guarantee that you would get an answer and probably an earful. Or if you asked a, uh, a sports fan friend what they thought about uh, the Golden State Warriors winning the NBA Finals, because okay, there's what one person thinks, because they already because uh, they stacked their already starstruck team with a, another All Star last summer, I'm sure you would get another earful. But if you were to ask a neighbor what they thought about um, neighbors moving in together, or what they thought about the morality of the gay pride parade last weekend, you might hear the oft-quoted words of Jesus, where he says, judge not lest you be judged. Or a comment that will remember, the Bible tells us that we should not judge. I remember one time, years ago, I watched a friend just treat someone awfully. I was helping him uh, move, and he had his moving truck parked at the end of this alley, and the alley to get there was a two 90-degree really sharp turns. And the trash truck came all the way around the corner behind him, picking up all these cans of trash, and asked my friend if he would move. And he said, no, I'm in the middle of my move here. And all he would have had to do was just turn around the corner and let the trash truck through. And I watched the trash truck spend about 15 to 20 minutes backing all the way out around these sharp 90-degree turns all the way out of the alley. And I said something to my friend about it, and he said, how dare you judge me? So our text this morning is one that is very familiar to those that aren't even Christians. And even some of the things that Jesus says here at the very beginning of the text almost sound ironic. He starts off our text by saying, don't judge. And then just a few verses later, he calls people dogs and pigs. It can look like just one big train wreck potentially or a massive set of contradictions. And I suppose at first glance it is. It is a seemingly massive set of contradictions, but I think as we dig into it, we'll see that it actually is truly, truly beautiful and truly amazing. So let's read the text together, and we'll pray, and we'll, we'll jump into it. So we're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment you pronounce will be, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened to you. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is God's words for us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your word here for us this morning. And Lord, it is a all-too-familiar text to us. We pray that you would illuminate it for us by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
And we pray that the aim of this text would be manifest in our lives. We ask for help this morning, Lord. We know that what the Lord Jesus is calling us to here requires great precision, care, delicacy, love, forbearance, kindness. And Lord, I know that I fall so short of those things. So we ask, Lord, by the power of your spirit and through the preaching of your word, we would be conformed to the image of your dear son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's dig into this text with this idea in mind. The main idea is that Jesus is teaching us that our justice must be informed by his mercy. Our justice must be informed by his mercy. And we'll unpack that under three headings. Uh, judging inside with mercy, reaching outside with mercy, and praying for mercy. Judging inside with mercy, reaching out with mercy, and praying for mercy. So two groups of people are listed for us, I would suggest, in verses 1 to 6. Uh, first is the Christian community. I'd say that's verses 1 to 5. It's, it's addressing us and primarily telling us how we ought relate with one another. And then verse 6 is those that are outside the community. I'll explain that to us. And then the prayer to apply it is verses 7 through 12 or 7 through 11. First, judging inside with mercy. So let's just simply start at looking at this principle that's given to us in verse 1, and then we'll apply it, judging inside with mercy. Verse 1 says, do not judge. What does this mean? Well, there's a, anytime you're looking uh, at a word, uh, you, you need to realize that there's a range of meaning for that word. There's a lexical range for what that word could potentially mean, and that's true for any language. So the same is true for the word Judge. Uh, an example is another word that we often talk about in the Greek. It's the word parakaleo, which on one side can mean to simply come alongside someone and have compassion. But in other contexts, the range of the word could also mean to strongly rebuke. So depending on the context and depending on the, the, the situation, the word uh, has a wide range of meaning. And the same is true here for us about the word judge. On the one hand, the word can simply mean to assess or gauge. A few years ago, uh, my family was driving back from, uh, from northeastern Washington, and, and we got through Tri-Cities, and I looked at the gas gauge, and I assessed whether or not we had enough gas. So as we came down the gorge, and we got onto I-84 and started going west towards Portland, about 20 miles outside of Biggs, I ran out of gas. Yeah, Ridiculous. So my assessment, my judgment, my evaluation was wrong. And we were waiting for AAA for about three hours. Yes, feel very bad for me. So the word can mean to evaluate, or it can mean to discern. You know, It's a judgment call, or I made a bad judgment of, of a situation. Uh, a judgment is to discern whether or not something's good or bad. A judgment is to discern whether something is right or wrong. So is Jesus telling us in Matthew 7, 1, that we are never to make an evaluation of something or someone? Is Jesus telling us that we ought never evaluate another person's behavior? Well, he can't be saying this because in just 10 verses, just look down your Bible 10 verses later, he's going to warn us about false prophets in verse 15. He's going to say, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. 
He's telling us to look out for false teachers and that we will know false teachers by the fruit in their lives. So he's telling us we're supposed to look at the fruit in a teacher's life, in my life, Severin's life, Chris's life, Matt's life, Dan's life, and you're supposed to assess it. You're supposed to evaluate it. You're supposed to judge it. And based on what you see on the tree of that person's life, you're supposed to assess that person. So Jesus can't be telling us that we're to withhold all kinds of assessments, judgments, and so on. So I'll give us this definition of what Jesus is not telling us to do. Because in this sense, it's saying to judge means to make a critical opinion. To make a critical opinion. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will tell, you, tell us in verse, chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as, in, uh, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus doesn't mean to tell us, don't evaluate behavior. Don't evaluate. Don't don't refrain from having a critical opinion of something. You know, most Americans anyway are very inconsistent with this principle of not judging. Because it tends to go like this. They say, you can't ever tell people what they are doing is wrong. But that in itself is a self-contradictory statement. (laughs) Because you're saying that people that tell people they're wrong are wrong. (laughs) Hope that makes sense. It's like this massive call to be tolerant, except you're not tolerant of people that are intolerant. It doesn't make sense. So what's the other range of this word then? What is Jesus saying? The other range of this word would suggest to judge with a sense of condemnation. To judge with a sense of condemnation. Or as one commentator put it, to snatch from God the verdict of the last day. To snatch from God the verdict of the last day. It's judging with an intent to hurt someone. It's judging with an intent to look down on someone. Or I think even better, it's judging with the intent of pushing someone out of your life. To make yourself feel superior. Romans 14.10, Paul the Apostle, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Another translation could say, Why do you look down on your brother? So there's a kind of judging. There's a kind of judging that Jesus is after that is a condemning in nature. That's putting down in nature. That's seeking to do something for yourself in nature. So there's two options here that we must always ask ourselves. There's two options here. There's two categories of questions. The first category of question is, are you trying to get the relationship back in your judgment? Are you trying to show this person something in their life that needs to be addressed for their sake? Or are you criticizing in order to punish criticizing in order to make this person feel bad, really just trying to get rid of them or to hurt them or to push them out of your life. There must be a desire in us to preserve the relationship, not simply to get rid of it. And that's the principle. That's the principle that this text is laying out for us. And this is crucial to us. It's crucial to us because the New Testament is telling us this is the entire way that the community of faith grows. Learning to approach one another. Learning to speak to one another with care and candor and gentleness for their sake. 
Paul will tell us, as some New Testament theologians have said, this verse is the centerpiece of New Testament discipleship. The one I'm about to read to you. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. But the means that God has given us, the apostle is telling us in Ephesians 4, the means whereby we grow up into Christ, which is the aim of the Christian life, which is the aim of discipleship, to become like Jesus, to grow up into him as the head. The way that we do that, the means whereby we do that, is speaking the truth in love to one another. So it's absolutely critical that we understand what our Lord is after here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. He's not saying just withhold all judgments altogether and just walk through life together, never addressing one another. Rather, he's saying we need to learn that difficult, gentle, hard skill of confronting one another for their sake. So let's get this on the ground. On the ground, I think, is explained to us more in verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Look, when you have a splinter in your eye, you can't see, right? You know, some of you've had that feeling before. There's a piece of sawdust or something. It makes your eyes water. You're, you're, you're blinking repeatedly. It's affecting your sight. You can't see very clearly at all. So the principle here is that the splinter or the speck is preventing you from seeing something clearly in your own life. The splinter or the speck in your eye is preventing you from seeing something clearly in your own life. Here's a couple of ways that I think this looks. When there's a sin in your life, a sin in your heart, a sin down in your soul, it affects other areas of your life. There's a besetting sin maybe. It's going to affect the other areas and aspects of your life and maybe you don't see it. You know, the very nature of a blind spot means that you don't see it. And my friends, we all have blind spots. We all have specks in our eyes. We all have places in our life that we don't see clearly. We all have places in our lives that we don't see clearly and it's affecting our judgment or it's affecting our outlook in other ways. It's indirectly affecting our lives. Look, maybe there's a difficulty in your marriage and maybe there's a struggle to simply figure out why that is. But it's obvious to others though. It's obvious to others that the hours that you're spent working away is having a deep effect on your life, on your wife rather. Or maybe the way that you talk about other people in front of her is affecting things. Or maybe your inattentiveness to her is affecting the state of your marriage. But you can't see it. You just see the outcome. You just know that there's a strain, there's a problem. You can't see clearly. Because the speck in your eye is causing your eyes to water, not see accurately. I would suggest another way that we don't see clearly, my friends. And oh, how often we do this is when we are offended. We do not see clearly when we are offended. When someone is offended, they walk around with their eyes watering, eyes itchy, almost unable to discern what is even right in front of them. The speck of offendedness 
deeply affects our judgments. It's kind of scary, actually. But we think that we can see something in someone else so clearly, we're certain that we understand this other person's motives, their actions, their behaviors. We're certain of it. And we're certain of it because we're offended. A speck of offendedness is deeply offending us, uh, deeply confusing us. We're like a blind man that walks up to the Grand Canyon and only says, wow, it's hot outside. I know this happens. And I know it happens for certain because I know it happens to me. I have been offended at times and have been talking to my wife about it or to a brother about it only to see my wife kind of look at me cross-eyed and say, you're crazy. You're crazy. That person didn't think all those things that you just said they thought. They didn't think this. They didn't think this. They weren't trying to hurt you to the degree you thought they did. Your vision is so skewed right now that you're deeply judging all of their behaviors and actions. And then the tendency is to reevaluate and to sort of reexamine and walk through past actions. And we start reinterpreting things that were done two years ago, 18 months ago, 12 months ago, six months ago. And we begin to sort of build this image in our mind of this person. We just totally vilify them. It's a massive speck in our eye. And it's because of our own offendedness. Does this happen to you too? Am I so, am I off base here? Has this happened to you? Does this happen to you? Are you in the kind of place that it's happening to you right now? You just can't see this person clearly. You're just so certain. You're so certain they're out to get you. You're so certain that their motives are just completely wrought through. My friends, the point of this text is that it requires outside judgment. It requires outside judgment. Our Lord's telling us, if you have something in your eye, you need someone to help you get it out. We need people to show us. We need people to show us things in our lives that we can't see. But conversely, my friends, we need people to tell us in such a way that requires to remove a splinter out of an eye. We first must give people license to do this, but we also must remember that it must be done with the utmost gentleness and care and kindness. What a principle. Jesus has so designed our lives that we need other people. But the analogy here says that it requires great care and precision. It's the kind of precision that's required to get a splinter out of an eye. You know, my kids, they just love to run around the backyard barefoot. I feel like, the, I, feel like I say, don't go in the fridge and put your shoes on more than any other phrase in my entire life. Put your shoes on, put your shoes on, put your shoes on. And they just love to run around. They run around in the bark dust. They run around on the deck. They run around. And they come inside all the time with these splinters in their feet. I'm just trying to care for them. I'm not trying to ruin their day. Because I know what happens. I know as soon as they put that little foot in my face and I come at it with a splinter, I mean, they recoil as if I just put like a machete to their toe. But wouldn't we be that way? Wouldn't we be that way if there was a splinter in my eye and all of a sudden Vanessa's coming at me with a set of splinters pliers like this to try to, or a set of tweezers to try to get out, I'd be like, no. But Jesus helps us here. He helps us in telling us how to do it. Because he says that the person here that's talking 
has a two-by-four coming out of their eye, (laughs) but they're looking at a speck that is in your own. You know, I think we normally know how we interpret this, that there's this massive level of hypocrisy, which is, which is true. The text says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. But I think the deeper principle for us here is that he's talking about people that are far more aware of their own flaws than other people's flaws. I mean, think about how a speck in your own eye would look to you from your own perspective. A speck in your own eye would be perceived by you as a log, as a two-by-four of sorts. It should look like a plank to you. I think it's part of what our Lord is suggesting to us. In other words, our sin should loom larger with us than it does in other people. And until it does, we won't be able to see others clearly either. The principle is simply, I know what's going on in my heart way more than I know what's going on in anyone else's. Even the people that are closest to me, my kids, my wife, my friends, I know what's going on in my heart a hundred, a thousand, I don't know, 10,000 times better than what's going on in theirs. I do. I see that. I think that's why the apostle can say in 1 Timothy 1.15 that I am the chief of sinners. I don't think he's being unnecessarily hyperbolic. I think he's saying, I see my own sin clearly than I see anyone else's so that I think I actually am the chief of sinners. He actually thinks it. Because he sees himself in a way that he can only see himself and he can never see another person. We know our hearts way more than anyone else's. But here is the point. (laughs) There must be something really, really wrong with our hearts. Because the evidence is there of the gravity of our own situation. And yet we are so quick to turn and look to others. We know that we know ourselves 10,000 times better than other people. We know it. And yet there must be something deeply wrong with our hearts. Because we are so quick to go after the other person. And the point that Jesus is getting at here is that our sin must loom large with us first. The gravity of our own situation. And once we grapple and deal with the gravity of our own situation, then and only then will we be able to actually be of service to care for another person. Because as we grapple with our own depravity, our own fallenness from God, the wickedness and the inner recesses of our own heart, then and only then can we truly grasp the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace can come to weak and broken sinners. The gospel of grace said our Lord Jesus Christ loved you when you were at your utter worst. He came to you. He gave you life. He forgave you. You're now his. All the blessings of heaven are upon you. The clouds opened at Jesus' baptism and said, this is my son with whom I'm well, I'm well pleased. And the suns and the heavens and everything opens for you now and says, this is my son, my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Knowing all your sin. And then that's the kind of person that can walk freely in this world. That can actually go to their brother or sister and actually be of help or service to them. They can say, let me help you with care and precision. Not to try to push you out. Not to try to hurt you. Not to try to condemn you. But to critically discern something in your life. And to see something and that I might actually help you. Brother, do you see that this is the way that you talk to your spouse? Brother, do you see that this is the way that you are to your children? You're not paying attention. You're inattentive. You're on the phone all the time. They need you, brother. They need you to be attentive to them. Have you ever been confronted like that with someone? Have you ever been confronted by someone who just is like, they have that kind of scalpel of love in their hand? 
You just know the whole time that they love you and they care for you and that they're just slicing and dicing. And you're like, oh, I love this guy so much. People like that actually exist. We read 1 Corinthians 13 this morning just as a reminder to us where it says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. We just don't know. We don't know what's going on in someone else's heart. We ought not judge other people's motives. We don't even know what goes on in ourselves, Paul says. Is our church like that? Is our church growing to strike that incredible balance? We're going to need to. We're going to need to. We're going to need to continue to learn how to do that as we come together as one new congregation. To learn to speak with one another with candor, but also with deep care and kindness and precision and gentleness. We need help to get the plank out of our own eyes so that we can actually be a help to our brother and sister. This is still point one, but don't worry, because as most of my sermons go, the second and third points are significantly smaller. So what's at stake here? Verse two. What's at stake here? Do not judge lest you be judged. Verse two says, for the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged in a measure you measure, it will be measured to you. My friends, these are challenging words. Jesus is saying that the, at the slide ruler of judgment that we place on others, God will place on us. His command is a warning to be cautious with our calculus towards other people. Friends, there's a strong, firm principle here, and it get down, gets down to the very nature of our heart's understanding of the gospel. We are not to live in the delusion that God forgives our sins when we do not forgive the sins of others. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. He says in 6.15, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The principle here, I would suggest, is a litmus test of the gospel. A litmus test to the degree that the gospel has radically gripped your heart. Do you understand the radical nature of the gospel of grace? And if you do, if it really has gone down deep into your hearts, then it'll manifest itself by a charitable, cheek-turning, relationship-restoring forgiveness. It'll mark your life with grace. It will not mark your life with ungrace. My friends, the commands to judge are insulated with commands to forgive. You know, the, probably the ultimate place is the chapter on church discipline in Matthew 18, where after every possible means has been taken, Jesus says, treat that person as a Gentile and a tax collector in 1817. But before that text, Jesus gives us the marvelous parable of the shepherd leaving the 99 to search after the one. If a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. And in the text right after, we talk about church discipline. Peter says, Lord, how many times, 
Well, my, well, my brother sinned against me and I forgive him. As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or even after that, the parable of the landowner who forgives his servant. The point is, is that the commands to judge are insulated by commands to forgive. Commands to judge are to be taken very, very cautiously and slowly, and they ought always be preempted with commands and actions to forgive. Certainly, the primary meaning of this verse, this text, verse 2, is to resist the damning criticism towards others with the promised reward of God not damning us. But I would suggest to us that there is a lesser and still significant meaning, though, in this text. There is a sense, and it's sort of what I was preaching in point one. This is point one. <laughs> in point one of point one. This is point two of point one. There is a sense in which our criticism brings us into bondage. There is a sense in which our criticism can actually bring us into bondage, to our own self-critical nature. It can affect us both psychologically and it can affect us socially. And we all know people like this. We all know people that are hypercritical and it's poisoned their minds and even their hearts. Their disposition towards people is harsh. They view the world through a half-empty glass. Every act of other people is hyper-reinterpreted. I've seen marriages that have gone through difficult times and gotten to the point where neither party could really please the other. The husband and the wife at different times Unfortunately, never at the same time, lay down their fighting and they simply try to love, forgive, show grace, but the receiving spouse could never properly receive it, always reinterpreting the motives of their spouse. They're just doing that because the elders are watching. They're just doing that because they want sexual intimacy. They're just doing this, but I know that they're just doing it because I was serious about leaving this time. But things will change in a few days, a few weeks, maybe even a few months. And the effect is devastating on the person themselves. It's devastating on the person themselves. They're not at peace. They're in massive inner turmoil. And really, this source of inner turmoil is their own judgment against another person or other people. Or maybe... Attitudes towards church leaders. I've been in countless situations where the elders have deliberated over an issue for hours, days, weeks, sometimes months, and a decision is made that seems best for the church, and then only to receive a letter or a note or a comment that devastatingly impugns our motives. God's word would have us see leadership as a kind gift from God to us. Leadership is a display of God's care for you and me. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Of no advantage to you at least means that it causes the leaders to not delight in shepherding you and that's of no advantage to you. But I think there's another sense too. It's also of no advantage to you and no advantage to your own soul because you're in a state of often judging the motives of leaders and you're creating a prison of your own making not truly embracing the gift of leadership that is God's good care for you. Both of these examples, marriage, leadership, friendship, workplace relationship, you name them. 
There's people that find themselves emotionally or psychologically in bondage, and it's a prison of their own making. The judgment with which you judge is coming back on your own head. But it also affects us socially. I think this is pretty easy to understand. It affects us socially because it's challenging. It's challenging to hang around and be around people that are constantly critical. It's just mentally and emotionally draining. The bottom line, to wrap up this first point, is that we need judge, mercy in our judgment of each other. Look, are you grace or ungrace to people? Have you embraced the truth of the gospel? Do you see your own sin and does it loom large in your own mind? And does it then help you to embrace the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ and allow you to graciously, carefully, cautiously, lovingly help your brother and sister to get the speck out of their eye? The second point, reach out with mercy. Look, we get to a weird, kind of an odd verse here, Matthew 7, 6. It's a short parable about this pearl. Um, And actually, both of the parables about pearls in Matthew's gospel are very short. I'm just going to read it to us one more time. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about this text, but I'm going to suggest to us one that um, I was meditating on this week. And it's actually to consider that dogs in this context are probably domesticated animals. Commentators are kind of split on this. Okay? Is it talking about something that's wild and unclean? Or is it talking about something that's friendly and close? Uh, I'm going to suggest that it's talking about something that's friendly and close. Um, because of other places in the, New, in the Gospels where, uh, where, where, where scraps of uh, table scraps are thrown to dogs. And I think that would suggest that the dogs are present, which also suggests that the dogs are probably pets of sorts, domesticated type animals. But when you throw something at a dog, you're trying to feed it. I think simply is the point. When you're throwing something at a dog, you're simply trying to feed it. And if you throw something to an animal that they can't eat, or they try to eat it and can't eat it, they often may turn to attack you. I think is what he's suggesting. See, Jesus says, he doesn't say throw a rock or a stone. He says, a pearl. And in Matthew's gospel, a pearl is the pearl of greatest price. It's the gospel. A pearl is the gospel. Matthew 15 13, rather, 45 to 46, is the, is, is, is the parable of, of the man selling everything to buy the field of the pearl of greatest price. The pearl of greatest price is that the king of the world has come to save us by his grace. So I think Jesus is suggesting here is that we ought to be cautious and careful at the way that we present and throw the gospel before other people. How does a pig deal with the gospel or a dog deal with the gospel? There's a tendency to say, how does this meet my immediate need? I'm hungry. I need food. I need nourishment. I don't need this, 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 this gospel, this pearl thing. I need a piece of meat. I need a piece of bread. And there's a way in which outsiders can look at the gospel in that regard. How does this meet my immediate need? What does obeying God actually get me? Does it get me more pay? Does it get me a better family? 
Some people, though, hear the gospel of grace. They hear about the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, and they love it, and they, they, they embrace it. They're astonished by the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. But others have a tendency to say, what do I get out of it? And Jesus says it's just being natural to their nature. They're looking for something for themselves. They're just being natural to their nature. So when the gospel, the pearl of greatest price, is presented before them, they respond in attack. Why would you say that I'm a sinner in need of radical grace from God? One group of people can say, what do I get out of it? But another group of people can say, it's beautiful, it's amazing. I can see the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My friends, I think what Jesus is actually talking to us about here is mercy at the rate at which we present and reach out to others. Mercy in the way that we present the gospel to others. There's a tendency in us to think that if we've simply presented the four spiritual laws or the truth of the gospel, then we're done. They rejected it, it's over. But I think our Lord would say that we need to be careful and precise and long-suffering and caring with people as we reach out to them with the gospel of grace. My friend uh, across the street from me, becoming my good friend, and uh, the other day he was asking me if I'd seen the movie The Shack. And I told him I hadn't, but I told him that I'd read the book several years ago. And uh, he was asking me what I thought about it. Now this book, The Shack, has, there's a lot of uh, uh, inner dialogue among pastors and leaders about, about this book because it's not very theologically accurate in the way that it portrays the Trinity. It's not very accurate. And I just assumed that's what he was asking me. So I said, well, yeah, so the doctrine of the Trinity, um, yeah, it's, I don't think it's very accurate. I think God is God the Father. God is not. Uh, the Father is not the, a, a woman. And he just looks at me like, what are you talking about? He's like, I don't care about all that. I'm asking you, do you think someone could actually forgive another human being if they did that to their daughter? And I just was totally taken aback. For one, I was totally consumed with some inner dialogue, which is massively important. The doctrine of the Trinity is massively important. I would die for the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? But this person had a question about the nature of grace. This person had a question about the nature of forgiveness. He says, do you think, you tell, you think someone could, a, a daughter could be, could be taken and murdered, and a man could actually forgive the other person that did that to his daughter? I said, yeah, I think so. I think, I, th- I think so. He just was like, I got to think about that. I got to get my mind around that. And then providentially, we're in this text this week to think about what does this, this friend of mine need, this, 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 this growing friendship. He needs care. He needs mercy. He needs patience as we gently continue to communicate the gospel to him. Long obedience in the same direction. Not a tendency to just quickly drop something on people and then walk away but the willingness to walk with people in evangelism for the long haul, day in and day out. I think it's telling us, my friends, that we have a responsibility to be thoughtful in their development. We have a responsibility to be thoughtful and careful in their development. It's an encouragement towards patience in evangelism. Well, that's point two, reach out with mercy. I'm going to just move along here. 
Point three is to pray for mercy. My friends, we've already had a longer teaching and prayer just a couple weeks ago. But I'm going to give us just a couple comments. Uh, I would suggest, first of all, Jesus is telling us to, to pray. It's almost like he's begging us to pray. He's saying, ask, seek, and knock. And the next verse says, because if you ask, you'll be answered. If you seek, you'll find it. If you knock, the door will be open to you. He's saying, just, just, just ask, seek, and knock. He says it six times in the course of two verses. It almost comes off like he's just begging us to pray. Just pray. Just ask me. I know you have all these needs. And I know you have a tendency to go talk to your wife about it or your friends about it or, or, or your coworkers about it. He's like, but just ask me. Just tell me. Just ask me. Just seek me. Just knock. And I'll give it to you. And I would suggest to us that if we want the kind of relationships that we see in section one and two, where we have, we have mercy in our judgment towards insiders and we have mercy in the way that we reach out, then those are the kinds of things that we should pray for in 7 through 11. I think that's primarily what Jesus is thinking about. Certainly, there, this, 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 this teaching on prayer vastly applies. But we ought to pray these kinds of prayers. We pray that we would see ourselves. Lord, help me see myself, the log in my own eyes. Lord, help me see the radical nature of the gospel. And then help me to truly and clearly see others, both those inside the community and those outside the community. Help me to do that, Lord. Help me to see myself the pearl of greatest price. Help me to stop doing a cost-benefit analysis on everything, to stop complaining Give me that kind of heart. We sang just the songs that our brother Severn picked today were so providential, the, the, the words in this text. We sang about the pearl of greatest price. Pray that, Lord, would you be the pearl of greatest price to us? Pray Psalm 84, that better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Pray Psalm 27.4, one thing I've asked of the Lord. I might dwell in his temple and I might gaze upon his beauty. Make that your prayer. Seek hard after that. Knock hard after that. Ask for that, my friends. And my friends, I'll leave you with this. That sometimes we just can't avoid people trampling on us. We just can't. We can come with precision. We can pray this kind of prayer. We can check our own hearts. We can try to move and repent ourselves. And we can approach someone and they still trample us. They still can. But my friends, that is what happened to our Lord Jesus. He came truly perfect, truly merciful, truly loving, gentle, meek, and mild. And we rejected him. We trampled all over him. He came to meet our greatest need and we rejected him. John's prologue will tell us that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Isaiah will tell us that we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. But he carried our sins and he bore our our, our iniquities and upon him was laid the chastisement of us all. And by his stripes we have peace. My friends, see our Lord Jesus. Embrace him as the one who you originally trampled on but came to you in loving care and kindness and grace. Let us pray. Our Father, we're grateful for this word. And we pray that this word would be true among us as a people. God, help us to be this kind of people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Let us just reflect for the next few moments here how God would have you respond to the preaching of his word. Amen. We come now to celebrate the Lord's table together, where we remember every week the broken body and the poured out blood of our Lord Jesus for our sake. Tangible evidence that he was trampled underfoot by us so that we might be brought back to him. This table is open to all who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ and been baptized. And if that describes you and you're visiting us from another fellowship, you're welcome to partake of the table with us. You can come up row by row. And take the elements back to your seat, and we will uh, take communion corporately in a few moments.